Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. My partner, Ravinder, is here in the studio with me today, who is just faunching at the bit to say hello to all of you, share her special insight, her vision for the future, and, of course, tell you all about where you can learn more about our show. So, go. Well, hello, everybody. Lovely to be back. We have a fascinating show on the schedule today, but I won't give out any secrets quite yet. Um, just to say that I'm excited about it. I think it's a great subject. Um, but then we always have great subjects on Provocative Enlightenment Radio. And if you go to our website, ProvocativeEnlightenment.com, uh, you can see over a decade worth of our archives. So there's a great deal of education available for you there in the most entertaining format possible. Um, I know I'm constantly learning. You know, we talk about being uncertain for an hour. I think I'm now permanently uncertain. And I think that's a good thing because that l makes it possible for me to learn more, take in more. So all is good. Well, great. All right. Listen, if you listen in the archives, that's wonderful. We appreciate it. If you catch a podcast, that's wonderful. We appreciate it. But in upcoming weeks, we're going to have some guests that will take questions from the audience live. So be sure to go to KKNW and get the Listen Live application and install it. Try to join us live if you can. All right. In this week's spotlight, I want to discuss intelligence. What exactly do we mean by intelligence? Do you have to be human to be intelligent? If animals possess intelligence, do plants? Do we think that feeling is a part of intelligence? Awareness, is that a measure of intelligence? Is the universe itself, as many philosophers and mathematicians believe, intelligent Webster defines intelligence this way, the ability to acquire and apply knowledge and skills, the act of understanding, comprehension. Now think about that while I turn to some controversial research regarding plant intelligence. Did you know that plants have a brain, at least a neural network? Indeed, quoting Stephen Herod Buhner, the similarity of human and plant neural systems and the presence of identical chemical messengers within them illustrate just why the same molecular structures, e.g. morphine, cocaine, alcohol, that affect our neural nets also affect plant consciousness. For their neural networks to function and demonstrate consciousness, plants use virtually the same neurotransmitters we do including the two most important, glutamate and GABA. They also utilize, as do we, acetylcholine, dopamine, serotonin, melatonin, epinephrine, norepinephrine, various estrogens, testosterone, and more, including a number of other neuroactive compounds. They additionally make use of their plant-specific neurotransmitter, auxin, which, like serotonin, is synthesized from tryptophan. These plant intelligence transmitters are used, as they are in us, for communication within the plant organism and to enhance brain function. So the fact is, plants perceive their environment and react accordingly. They compete for resources. They communicate with other plants. 
Indeed, trees have been demonstrated to communicate with one another over great distance. And the list goes on. But do plants also feel? One of my old lie detection colleagues, Cleve Baxter, claims that he once used a GSR to measure plant physical reactions. In one experiment, a goldfish was boiled in front of the philodendron by a subject, and every time this same subject appeared in the room, the plant responded. Baxter sent several others into the room with a plant, but the philodendron failed to respond as it did with the perpetrator. Do plants also sense danger? We have entertained guests who are convinced that the Earth itself is intelligent, the Gaia hypothesis. So I ask you again, what is intelligence? And more importantly, let me ask this. How should we treat intelligent life forms? Think on this. We now know that some patients, thought to be comatose with no conscious awareness whatsoever, have awakened and shared details of what went on while they were supposedly unable to do anything other than vegetate. When we think of intelligence, we often interchange it with consciousness. Are they the same? If a person in a vegetative state is still aware, does this force us to rethink our perception regarding conscious and non-conscious entities? For me, maybe we need to rethink this whole matter of intelligence and consciousness. I'm definitely rethinking my view, as well as my thoughts on something called ahimsa, respect for all life. What about you? Those are my thoughts, and as always, I welcome yours. How about you, Ravinder? What are your thoughts? You know, I think it's a really interesting subject. You um, were talking about the universe itself being intelligent and I think I feel that intuitively that maybe it is but is that a scientific is that science does it is there any science behind that to actually say that it is intelligent as well you know I just don't know I feel the same way about plants I think the majority of us do I mean if ever you come across people chopping down a really large tree what just picture, you know, a marvelous, beautiful tree. It hurts us all. We look at that and we don't like to see these things. I've seen farming methods um, where there isn't much respect given for the harvesting of the food. They just have these giant machines come along and they just chop it all down in one go and there's nothing there. And when I see that, I feel like there's something wrong with it. But how much intelligence plants have, I don't know. How much intelligence does the universe and have, I don't know. The Gaia hypothesis, it feels like there's something in there. I think it's just good practice that if you don't know the answers, then be as respectful as you can anyway and pay attention for those times when you do come across the answers. Yeah, and I hesitate about this idea of quantifying intelligence, how much intelligence a pig has, the intelligence of a three-year-old child. But a six-month-old child, we don't think of that as being unconscious. No. Certainly not worthy discarding or some such thing of that nature. So the whole notion of quantifying is, you know, that's that's a slippery slope in, in my view. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Carrie wrote, I have not only read Choices and Illusions more than once, but have bought it as a gift for close friends. I currently, I am currently in the process of reading What Does That Mean? and enjoying it thoroughly. Eldon Taylor and Intertalk have been a very positive influence in my life, for which I thank you so very much. Well, Carrie, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed Choices. That's that's my favorite book. How about you, Rev? Yeah, I do. I remember the first time I read that, actually. I mean, I, I thought it was the best ever. I called you up because I took the stuff. I brought the stuff to the office, and I dedicated a day for myself just to read it. And I just sat down, and I read it nonstop, and I called you at 3 o'clock. And I, yeah, no, I agree. It's the best book. I love the book. I think it is a 
a, a definite pathway right there. Jan wrote, I have to tell you, I think Ravinder and you are awesome. Well, Ravinder is for sure. Every time I listen to you both banter and the love that comes through when you introduce her on your show, it just gives me hope that love is possible. And it goes without saying, your topics are exceptional. Bravo. Well, thanks, Jan. And you're definitely awesome. You are <laughs> definitely awesome. I see. <laughs> well, now you're blushing. Well, I got gotcha. yes, you. I'm gotcha. also wondering what you're going to ask me for. Uh, well, that's how a lot of the question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Rachel wrote, Hi, I'm a nutritionist and a life coach, and I'm constantly referring to clients to you. I have used your InterTalk programs personally with great success. And Edward wrote, I can't tell you how grateful I am to have you and your lovely wife, Ravinder, in my life. You guys are truly helping me change my life for the better. Thank you for everything. Your work, your products, material, and wife's guidance has served as great mentorship to me. I would love to meet both of you guys in person at some point in the future. That would be cool, Edward. Thank you. You like that? I do. That was lovely. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but please keep your comments coming. We do sincerely appreciate your feedback. You can opine by sending me an email to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. Now to today's show. Galileo's Era, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness with Professor Philip Goff. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Philip Goff is an associate professor of philosophy at Durham University. His research focuses on how to integrate consciousness into our scientific worldview. He has authored an academic book with Oxford University Press, called Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, and a book aimed at a general audience called Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness, the subject of today's show. Dr. Goff has published over 40 academic articles, as well as writing extensively for newspapers and magazines, including Scientific America, The Guardian, and The Times Literary Supplement. Goff's interview by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Gareth Cook was one of the most viewed articles in Scientific American of 2020. Okay, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Philip Goff. Hello, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward it's, to chatting. It's a pleasure to have you, and I was quite curious as to whether or not you'd show right on time. Since <laughs> Ravinder explained to me, you have to put your daughter to sleep. I think that's just so cool. Well, I'm very lucky. She she always goes down very quickly, so so she didn't disappoint tonight. So <laughs> that's not great. always the case with kids, but we like to learn three things from our guests on this show, Professor. What is the message? Who is the messenger? And of course, how do we use that? Uh, to that end, please share with us what you're passionate about and why. Yeah, well, I guess I've, as long, far back as I can remember, I've been passionate about the topic of consciousness. And, you know, I think it's, what's so fascinating about it is, on the one hand, nothing is more ev evident and undeniable than the reality of consciousness, the reality of our own feelings and thoughts and experiences. You know, nothing is more every day. It's what we live in every second of waking life. On the other hand, nothing has proved harder to fit into our scientific story of the universe, despite great progress on our scientific understanding of the brain. We still don't have even the beginnings of an explanation of how complicated electrochemical signaling could somehow produce this inner world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes that each of each of us enjoys every day so there's 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 a deep mystery there you know and some people think well it's you know there is a problem here but we just need to plug away with our standard scientific methods of investigating the brain and and we'll crack it but i think that's wrong i've been led to think through my research that the problem of consciousness is radically different from any other scientific challenge and indeed because of this the the standard scientific approach at least on its own isn't fully equipped to deal with it 
I couldn't agree with you more about the mysterious nature of consciousness. I spent my entire life in one way or another looking at that. Um, you heard today's spotlight, Professor. What have I got wrong? What have you got wrong? Well, I, you know, I'm not sure I can identify anything you've got wrong, but I was struck by uh, you started with two definitions of intelligence. Uh, and, you know, I can't remember the exact quotations, but one was about applying skills uh, and the other was to do with ex understanding. Mm -hmm. And I actually think these are two very different things. If we think about artificial intelligence, what people are focused on there, I think, is the former. Can something respond in an intelligent way? Can it pass what, what's become known as the Turing test? So Turing, the great father of computer science, came up with this this test. He called it the imitation game, actually, but it's become known as the Turing test. And right. what the idea is you have behind a curtain, a computer and a human being. And you have to and, and the person asking questions doesn't know whether it's a computer or a human being. And the computer can pass the Turing test if it can trick the person on the other side of the of, of the curtain into thinking it's a computer. Sorry, into, into thinking it's a human being. That's, right. the, that's the Turing test. And Turing said, if it can do that, it's intelligent. But is it intelligent? It's intelligent in this first sense of responses, skills, behavior, responding in an intelligent way. But in principle, that could be achieved just by a mechanism, a complicated enough mechanism. It, just because something can respond in, a, in an intelligent way, I don't think that means it has understanding. I think for understanding, you need sentience, you need conscious awareness. So we could, in principle, one day maybe we'll have silicon duplicates of human beings that can maybe mechanisms that are set up to have a conversation with you and maybe they'll opine about i don't know their views on economics and their views on the environment their views on the global pandemic it'll seem as though you're talking to an intelligent person but if they don't have consciousness if they don't have any un any internal awareness if they're just a mechanism that's set up to parrot those answers then I don't think they're really intelligent. I don't think they really have understanding. And I think this is something that's, that's rather neglected in the field of artificial intelligence. People focus on building a computer that can respond, can behave intelligently, pass the Turing test. But I don't think, but, that, but I think the deeper question is, could we ever have a machine that had consciousness, that had sentience? Because only then I think would you have real understanding and, and therefore, in a real sense, real intelligence. And I think this is something we're only starting to think about here in the scientific community. That's, that's actually a hotly debated issue right now. Um, I have two sons that are both computer engineers that specialize in machine learning and artificial intelligence. And, of course, there's a great difference between machine learning which, you know, and we do have, uh, the Turing test has been passed, although arguably um, in a questionable way. Uh, and, you, and you've done a very good job at fleshing out the differences between um, intelligence and communicating in a responsive way, machine-learned way. But do you think it's possible that at some point, uh, artificial intelligence will gain self-awareness because that's the key to consciousness, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So, I mean, whether computers have just passed the Turing test, you, you often get um, headlines of computers passing the Turing test. But I think people have slowly redefined it a little bit compared to, to, to what um, Alan Turing initially proposed, which was his initial proposal was a machine had to fool 70% of judges uh, in a five-minute conversation. And as far as I'm aware, I mean, you, you might be correct, I don't think any, anyone's, any computer's ever passed uh, that initial test that, that Turing proposed in his original paper. Correct. But, you can, but you, you're completely right that um, that doesn't mean that the computer has self-awareness. The philosopher... Um, um, oh God, my mind's gone blank now. John Searle, 
designed this thought experiment that he called the Chinese room thought experiment. And what he imagined was there's a room with a, with a human being inside that doesn't speak Chinese. But they have a big book of instructions. And what happens is people pass under the door. There are Chinese speakers outside of the room. And they pass little messages in Chinese under the door. And this person picks them up, looks up the Chinese symbol in their big book of instructions, and works out which symbol to give them back. And if this book of instructions is big enough and complicated enough, it would give the impression that there was someone speaking who understood Chinese inside the room. But really, there's just some, let's say, American guy who doesn't know Chinese. He's just got this big book of instructions. What was Searle trying to capture with this? This was really a vivid way of capturing what a computer is. A computer is an algorithm is, is just a complicated set of instructions. So the fact that a computer can follow a set of instructions, even complicated enough to give the impression that it understands Chinese by giving the answers, it doesn't mean it really does. Just as that person in the room with their big book of instructions doesn't really understand Chinese. So as you say, what, what, what we need is what would it take for something non-organic a machine to be conscious and you know this is still early days in the science of consciousness and we we still really a long way from having a definite answer but there are a number of proposals um, one I explore in my book is the the integrated information theory uh, and according to this according to this theory consciousness goes along with integrated information and that the, the, the the proponent of this, the uh, neuroscientist Giulio Tononi, formulates a mathematically precise notion of integrated information. So the idea is that I've got a, a glass of water here. Uh, Tononi thinks that the water isn't conscious. Why not? Because there's more integrated information in the molecules making up the water than there is in the water itself. So there isn't much integrated information in the water as a whole. But in the human brain, you know, we have 86 billion neurons, each connected to 10,000 others, yielding trillions of connections. There's an unbelievable amount of integrated information. If you take, up a, take out a tiny bit of the brain, you lose a huge amount of information because the way it stores information is dependent on those that network, that web of connections. And so Tononi thinks that's why you have consciousness in the brain because there's much more integrated information in the whole than there is in the parts. There's, there's some modest confirmation to this theory. It, it, can, it explains, for example, why there is consciousness in the posterior cortex but not in the cerebellum the cerebellum has huge number of neurons it's got 69 billion out of the brain's 86 billion and yet it doesn't seem to be consciousness why not why does this why does the posterior cortex with its fewer neurons have consciousness when the cerebellum with its 70 with 69 billion neurons doesn't well the idea is it's because there's in, more integration in the in the cortex now if this theory is true actually anything something that's anything like the kind of computers we have now would not be conscious because although you can have a hell of a lot of information in a computer it's not stored in a way that depends on the connections if you take out a couple of transistors you don't lose that much information so we'd have to it doesn't mean we couldn't have artificial consciousness but it means we'd have to have something very different from the kinds of computers we have now we'd have to have something that stores information in a web of connections. Just finally, w one interesting implication of this theory. If we ever got to a time when there was more integrated information in the internet than in a human brain, this theory predicts we would cease to be conscious in our own right. We'd be absorbed in a sort of supermind, ubermind of the internet. But you don't need to worry because we're we're a hell of we're, there's an unbelievable amount of integrated information in the human brain and we're a very long way away from the internet surpassing that but basically i think it's early days we haven't really we've we've thought a lot about artificial intelligence we haven't really got to first base i think in thinking about artificial consciousness 
Very well explained, sir. We have a break, a hard break coming up in front of us. Um, when we come back, I, I'm going to ask you this. That theory essentially is is very similar to the notion of emergent properties. So I'm going to ask you about emergent properties when we return. We're speaking with Professor Philip Goff about his work and book, Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. I love the book. It is a great read. It is an enjoyable read, and I highly recommend it. You can learn more about our guest and his book by visiting Consciousness and Consciousness as one word, conscience, I'm sorry, conscienceandconsciousness.com. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Philip Koff about his work and book, Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. You can learn more about our guest and his book by visiting Conscience and Consciousness, as one word, conscienceandconsciousness.com. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a hobby of mine and a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Now, your chosen music professor is, heaven knows I'm miserable now, by the Smiths. And I understand that you sang this one to your wife at your wedding. So please yeah. tell us, why is it this music of... important to you? And more importantly, how does it inform us about who you are? Uh, I think I'm always a big Smiths fan. Both me and my wife are Morrissey's, you know, the singer under Smiths. I think it, what was interesting is... Um, what a different kind of rock star he was. You know, rock stars you think of as cool and sexy and everyone loves them. Whereas suddenly you had this guy, Morrissey, saying, oh, I'm lonely. Nobody likes me. I'm very ugly. And, uh, you know, just such a wonderful contrast. And he used to sort of have these gladioli flo fl flying around on the stage. Uh, and then so me and my wife have always been a fan of this band. And then I used to have a band in my 20s. And at our wedding, we got back together as a surprise and uh, in the reception and sung this song. Uh, and then I sung When I Was 64 on my own. So that was uh, a little <laughs> reminder of my wedding four years ago. That's cute. That's cute. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, just one, on, on the blog. I go mean, ahead. The, it was horribly titled blog. I regret. But, but my website is much easier. It's just philipgoffphilosophy.com. That's Philip with one L and Goff, G O. F F Foxtrot Foxtrot. So that's probably a bit easier, and then you could you can link to the blog from there. Oh, cool, good. And you'll post that, correct, Ravinder? Yes, I I picked up on that already. A lot easier to type in his name than the consciousness. Conscious. <laughs> conscious <laughs> yeah, conscious. it's okay. horrible. Or I spend so a lot of time on Twitter actually. Philip under slash golf as well. All right, so good. Get in touch. 
Okay. Sorry, Ibram, I interrupted you there. No, that's good. I'm glad you, you did that. You know, it was a tongue twister, obviously. I had a problem with it the first time. I had to look at it, read it carefully <laughs> when I said it after no. that. But, hey, it, it's a great website. I've been to the website. A lot of information there. But, all right, before the break, I said I was going to ask you about emergent properties. Yeah. Differentiate between the popular notion that everybody wants to to you know put out there especially those mechanistic uh, uh, folks today scientists today that's known as emergent properties differentiate between emergent properties um, and in your philosophy but by contrast to what you've already discussed yeah so I guess I'm inclined to think in, in, in some sense consciousness emerges from the brain but I think we need an explanation. I think where you have emergence, you need an explanation of how that happens. So take the analogy of water, the liquidity of water, or the boiling point of water. That you know the liquidity emerges from the H2O molecules. You know one H2O molecule isn't wet, but put a lot of them together, you get wetness. So in a sense, it emerges. But in this case, we have a perfectly intelligible comprehensible explanation if you know enough about the chemistry you understand why water behaves as a liquid why it boils when it does so you get an explanation you can't just say oh it emerges you need to explain that and it's that explanation that's precisely what we're missing in the case of consciousness no one's got even the beginnings of an explanation of how electrochemical signaling could give rise to the qualities we know in experience, the colors, the sounds, the smells, and the tastes. And I think, you know, the reason this is such a challenge is because neuroscience works with a purely quantitative vocabulary. That, that story of electrochemical signaling is in a purely quantitative language, whereas consciousness is an essentially quality-involving phenomenon. Think about the the redness of a red experience or the smell of coffee or the taste of mint. You just can't capture those kinds of qualities in the purely quantitative language of neuroscience. And so as long as your description of the brain is framed in that purely quantitative language, you're always just going to leave out these qualities and hence really leave out consciousness itself. Um, and you just, just finally on this, what I try to press, and this hence the title of my book, Galileo's Error, is we shouldn't be surprised that our standard scientific story, standard scientific approach, struggles to account for consciousness. And that's because our standard scientific approach was designed to exclude consciousness. So a key moment in the scientific revolution in 1623 was Galileo's declaration that mathematics was to be the language of the new science. He said, right, from now on, Science is going to work with a purely mathematical, quantitative vocabulary. But Galileo, also known as the father of modern science, understood quite well that you can't capture the qualities of consciousness in these terms. You can't capture the redness of a red experience in an equation. So Galileo said, right, if we, want a math if we seriously want a mathematical science, we have to take consciousness outside of the domain of science. So in Galileo's worldview, there is a radical division between the quantitative domain of science and the qualitative domain of consciousness, consciousness with its colors and sounds and smells and tastes. So this was the start of mathematical physics. It was only once consciousness was out of the way that mathematical physics was possible. So I think this is really important. I'll just finish this. Sorry, I've gone on a little bit, but I think this is important because so many people think, okay, there's a problem of consciousness, but look at the success of physical science in explaining more and more of our universe. Of course, it will one day crack it. But I argue that this is rooted in a misunderstanding of the history of science. Yes, physical science has been so successful, but it's been so successful precisely because and from the moment that Galileo designed it to ignore consciousness. Galileo gave it a more narrow scope 
And so the fact that it's done well when since it ignored consciousness doesn't mean it's going to do well when we bring consciousness back into the story. So I, 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 I think we can have confidence that we will one day have a science of consciousness. But I think we need to rethink what science is because our current the scientific approach we've had for the last 400 years was designed to ignore consciousness. It was designed to focus on the quantitative, not the qualitative. And the empirical, the verifiable, not the subjective. Yeah, excellent. That's another, that's another way of putting it. So this is, I mean, another way of seeing why consciousness is, is not just another scientific problem is that consciousness is not publicly observable. You can't look inside someone's head and see their feelings and experiences. We know about our consciousness not from experiments, but from our immediate awareness of our feelings. If I'm in pain, I'm just directly aware of my pain. So, of course, science is used to dealing with unobservables. You can't directly perceive a fundamental particle. But there's an important difference. In all other cases, we postulate unobservables in science to explain what we can observe. What we're trying to explain all the time in science is public, as you said, publicly observable data. But in the case of consciousness, it's different. The thing we are trying to explain is not publicly observable. And so it's a totally different explanatory enterprise. Um, and I think this really constrains our capacity to deal with it experimentally, which is not to say we can't learn some things about it experimentally, but it's not the full story. So science is focused on explaining observable, publicly observable data in the quantitative mathematical vocabulary. But consciousness is, is when we're dealing with consciousness, we're trying to explain something that's not publicly observable and that has this qualitative nature, colors, sounds, smells, tastes that you can't capture in a purely quantitative mathematical vocabulary. It's a totally different expansionary enterprise, which Galileo, the father of modern science, totally understood. So that's why he's, he never intended physical science to be a complete story reality. He said, look, let's just focus on what we can capture in mathematics. Ignore the rest. We can't do, we can't do science with it or we can't do this kind of science with it. And it's a, it's a lesson we've forgotten. Uh, yeah, and I suppose I could take the exception that it's really not Galileo's error because he was aware of what he was doing. It it, it was the following of that principle um, by everyone else, uh, attempting to convert everything into empirical data that was, as we call it, scientifically verifiable, that was the mistake, right or wrong. Yes, you're completely right, Eldon. So, yeah, I mean, my book has a provocative title, but, I mean, I, I've, I've got a lot of time for Galileo, and as you say, he understood the situation here much better than we did. I mean, I think we're now going through a phase of history where human beings are so blown away by the success of physical science and the incredible technology it's produced that this inclines people to think, this is it. We, we've got the truth. We, we haven't got all the answers, but we've got the method for finding the truth. And that gets wrapped up in people's identity, their sense of themselves. People sometimes talk of religion as a crutch or an identity. But I think a certain kind of scientism can also, you know, people like to think that's, that's who they are. They're on the side of progress. And um, I mean, progress is a great thing. But again, I think this is a mistake because I think it's done so well, not because it was not intended to account for everything. It was intended for a quite specific task. If Galileo were to time travel to the present day and hear about this problem of explaining consciousness in the terms of physical science, he'd say, of course you can't do that. I designed physical science to deal with the quantitative, not the qualitative. And um, yeah, so just, I mean, it doesn't mean that there are things we can do experimentally. Uh, although you can't observe consciousness, you can ask people what they're feeling and experiencing and you can scan their brains. And th in this way, we can try and establish what kinds of experience go along with what kinds of brain activity. That's what we can do experimentally. And we've made great progress on that. Um, but that's not a full science of consciousness, because what we ultimately want is an explanation. Why is it? 
that certain kinds of brain activity go along with certain kinds of experience. Why should that be? And that's, I do, and that's not a question you can answer with an experiment. All you can do with experiments is establish more and more correlations between brain activity and consciousness. You can't with an experiment um, explain why those correlations obtain. Very well said. And a lot of the what, secular reductionistic, mechanistic philosophies today are nothing more than scientism. Um, professor, that's my view. I don't mean to put words in your mouth. Um, please define for our audience panpsychism, because that's where we're going, is it not? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess in our standard science, you know, standard way of thinking about things, consciousness exists only in the brains of highly evolved organisms and, and only exists in, in very recent history, you know, cosmically speaking, at least. Um, but according to panpsychism, consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. So it, 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 it doesn't literally mean everything is conscious. It's common misunderstanding, although that's what the word means. Pan means everything and psyche, mind. But it, it, the basic view is that the fundamental building blocks of reality, perhaps fundamental particles like electrons and quarks, uh, or perhaps universe-wide fields. Many theoretical physicists prefer to think in terms of universe-wide fields and then think of particles as sort of local excitations in fields. But whatever we think of, as the fundamental building blocks of reality, physical reality, for the panpsychist, they have unimaginably simple forms of experience. So let's think, for the sake of simplicity, fundamental particles have unimaginably simple forms of experience. And the very rich and complex experience of the human or animal brain is somehow built up out of those very simple bits of experience at the fundamental level. So, sounds a bit crazy, but more and more philosophers and uh, even some neuroscientists are starting to think about that this might be our best hope for trying to give a science of consciousness because we can't, we can't bridge the gap from the purely quantitative story of electrochemical signaling to the qualitative qualities we find in experience. But it might be possible if we put some kind of basic experience at the bottom, it might be able to possible to bridge the gap from very simple forms of experience at the fundamental level up to the complex experience of the human or animal brain. And that's precisely what the panpsychist research program that I'm an active member of with philosophers and neuroscientists and physicists is currently trying to make progress on. And it's very exciting times. Um, drawing on what you said, you know, what, what we've talked about already, models of organization, integration in particularly, if, if the fundamental material, uh, non-material material, uh, that makes up this universe is for all intent and purposes, let's just say, you know, quantum level intelligent. Would would we expect to see an emergent property arise as a result of that organization and integration? Well, that's the hope. That's the hope. Yeah, I mean, we we know consciousness exists. Uh, nothing is more evident where we started off this conversation. Nothing is more evident than the reality of our own experiences. The puzzle is, where does it come from? How does it get here? Um, this is not a question, as I say, we can answer an experiment. How do we answer it? I think we have to, we just have to try and formulate a theory of reality that fits the experimental data from neuroscience, fits the data from physics, including quantum physics that you're referring to. There's a, vo a volume with Oxford University Press on quantum mechanics and consciousness coming out that I've got a contribution to. Um, but also that avoids these explanatory gaps. That's the problem with materialism. Does this gulf of an explanatory gap between the quantitative story of neuroscience and the qualitative story of human consciousness. So we need to bridge those gaps and we need a simple theory, a simple, that's the general scientific approach to try and have a, a simple and unified a theory as possible. That's why I, I don't like 
so much traditional belief in the soul that there's the consciousness is non-physical i don't like divides in nature between the physical stuff and the non-physical stuff i want a more simple unified picture of nature so i think panpsychism captures all these it can fit the data it uh hopefully eliminates explanatory gaps we can explain how human consciousness emerges from simpler forms of consciousness and it's a simple elegant unified story there's just one kind of stuff and it's both physical and consciousness on this view matter just matter is what consciousness does there's just consciousness stuff physical science tells us how it behaves so we can there's just matter but it can be seen from two perspectives are you familiar with uh, Hameroff and Penrose's theory on microtubules and the interaction at a quantum level? Yeah, I've, I've had many, I've had conversations with both of them, actually. I've had a lot of conversations with Stuart, and then at the, the big consciousness conference they run in, he runs in Arizona, I'd, I was lucky enough to have lunch with Roger Penrose, and we, we talked over some of this stuff. I mean, what's interesting about their view, Penrose's motivation, and this comes back, actually, to where we started, it's not so much consciousness, but intelligence cognition penrose made a fascinating connection with um girdle's incompleteness theory theorem Mm -hmm. sorry girdle proved that um uh you can't reduce mathematics to axioms uh so in a sense you could never had an algorithm that could completely compute mathematics and he proved that so penrose in his book, what was it called? I think the, 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 the Emperor's New Mind, I think it was called. He said, well, let, well, we understand mathematics. So if a computer can't, we can't be computers. And he thought, indeed, that there must be something non-classical, something uh, quantum underlying the kind of cognition that allows us to understand mathematics when a computer never could. So that's really what motivates him. And, and then Hemerov, Hemero, sorry, not Hemerov, Hemery, Hamerov, uh, worked out the sort of Im- the, the empirical implications of that with microtubules. So, yeah, so it's, it's a fascinating theory. And I've never seen an adequate response to, to uh, Penrose's argument. But it's, it's more focused on understanding rather than consciousness. But maybe these are two sides of the same coin. Right, right. Kurt Girdles. Yeah. First principles inherently improvable. Uh, Professor, are you familiar with uh, the new research that just came out of Japan uh, where the researchers showed um, microscopic uh, responses, faint flashes of light in the structure of human cells when exposed to magnetics that they're referring to as, um, you know, quantum quirkiness? I'm not sure I am, actually, with, with with this specific data. Oh, it's Maybe a brand new study that was just published mm. in Nature. Okay, let's go somewhere Sounds else. Sounds fascinating. This. I'll um, look it up. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm fully on board with uh, panpsychism, uh, not in it, in a lot of the ways that it's been um, characterized in the past, but in uh, the way you have described the universe. Let's just put it that way. I, I think there is. Uh, uh, a, a great deal of traction to that theory. Uh, I can see that we're getting short on time. So, Professor, before we get out of here, I want you to take a minute and tell everybody where they can get your book, where they can learn more about you, uh, read your blog, etc. Ah, well, the book's called Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. The paperback's just come out in the, in the U.S. I guess you can you can Google it or find it on Amazon. Um, my website is philipgoffphilosophy.com with uh, one L and G-O, foxtrot, foxtrot for Goff. Um, I write a lot of popular articles, which are linked to on my, on my website and my blog's linked to. I spend a lot of time arguing on Twitter, philip under slash Goff, so if you want to get get in touch that way. And um, Oh, I'm just about to start to do something with my YouTube channel, actually. I'm going to do a series uh, tentatively titled The Mind Under Lockdown. We've just got a new lockdown in, in the UK. And I'm going to interview three guests, three brilliant women, in fact, young female philosophers, for, on each of the major theories of consciousness, uh, materialism, dualism, panpsychism, and idealism. And um, we're going to have some conversations over, over the next few months. So so I, I, I'll link to that on my website at some point. I haven't, um, should get Sounds- that. 
Yeah. Sounds exciting. Now, one last question, and you get one minute for this one, and it's probably the biggest of all. Our Uh, listeners are hearing all about consciousness. What has that got to do with the meaning of life? It's a good question, because, I mean, I don't think this is just an abstract puzzle. I think consciousness is at the root of human identity. We fundamentally relate to each other as creatures with feelings and experiences. Consciousness is the basis of everything that's important in human existence. And yet, our standard scientific theory of reality doesn't have a place for it. You know, if you attend to your experience, what it's like to be you right now, the colors, the sounds, the smells and the tastes, our official scientific worldview says that all that's really going on in your head is the purely quantitative story of electrochemical signaling. And I think that's equivalent to saying those qualities don't really exist. And that's absurd. Nothing is more evident than the reality of the qualities you immediately experience, the colors, the sounds, the smells. So I think we're at a position where our official scientific worldview denies the existence of the thing that's most evident and the thing that is the the core, what, what human life is all about, what gives it value. Um, so I think this, this leads to a real sense of alienation, a sense that we don't belong to the world, we don't fit in. Panpsychism is a theory of reality, a worldview that can accommodate what science has to tell us. All right, sir. I, data, but also consciousness. I don't want to cut you off, but <laughs> we're out of time. The book is Galileo's Error. Go get a copy of it. It is a great read. I want to thank you, sir, for sharing your work and your experience with us, and we wish you the best in your endeavors to come. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment, and I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.